Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Beasts Burdens on Climate Collapse and Non-Human Animals. Our music throughout comes from David Rothenberg, composer and jazz musician whose books and recordings reflect a long-time interest in understanding other species, such as whales, birds, and insects, by making music with them. This is Flame, off of the 2018 album Grinsland. On April 22, 1970, Democratic Senator Garland Nelson, originator of the idea of Earth Day, proclaimed, quote, Winning the environmental war is a whole lot tougher challenge by far than winning any other war in the history of man. It will take 20 to 25 billion more dollars a year in federal money than we're spending or asking for now. Our goal is not just an environment of clean air and water and scenic beauty. The objective is an environment of decency, quality, and mutual respect for all other human beings and all other living creatures. Our goal is a new American ethic that sets new standards for progress, emphasizing human dignity and well-being rather than an endless parade of technology that produces more gadgets, more waste, more pollution. Are we able to meet the challenge? Yes. We have the technology and the resources. Are we willing? That is the unanswered question." Unquote. It appears that question's been answered in the negative, though, and we did indeed emphasize an endless parade of technology that produced more gadgets, more waste, and more pollution. And so, no new American ethic that emphasizes human dignity, and especially no ethic that emphasizes dignity for those all other living creatures in Nelson's statement. Today, there's a single fire in Australia burning an area larger than Manhattan. Multiple fires burning since November have killed an estimated 500 billion animals. Koalas notable to us for their image of vulnerability, have lost 80% of their habitat so far. And there's more death and destruction to come as the fires rage on due to record droughts and continuing record temperatures there. We are witnesses to the consequences of not winning Nelson's environmental war. And from fire to flood, in 2018, Hurricane Florence swept through North Carolina, killing at least 3.4 million farmed animals and an unknown number of wild animals. What we generally heard reported, though, was the toxic consequences the flooding of their waste pools would create to the humans there. Humans are simply a catastrophe, considered from the perspective of the non-human. We breed and kill at least 100 billion animals per year for food and at least 115 million per year for research. Fishing kills 1 to 3 trillion animals per year. Deforestation destroys animal habitats. And on and on it goes. What can be done for non-human animals? as human-caused climate collapse continues. Jeff Sebo is Clinical Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies and Affiliated Professor of Bioethics, Medical Ethics, and Philosophy at New York University. And now, Beasts Burdens with Jeff Sebo on Interchange on WFHB. Welcome to Interchange, Jeff Sebo. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. Uh, Jeff, uh, you and I were talking right before we went on the air. You said the Australia numbers for uh, uh, um, deaths or you know, the death toll in, uh, for the animals there have, have been updated. Can you give us some of those? Yes. So the, the updates have been coming in pretty regularly. Even as of a few days ago, people were estimating that there were 
around 500 million wild animals dead in the fire so far. And now that has been updated to over a billion wild animals. And some of that is because more animals have died. And some of it is because the estimates are getting more inclusive, for example, by including a wider range of animals, including invertebrates. So over a billion animals seem to have died in the fire so far. Hmm. And more specifically, we know that now I think 25 humans have died, about 25,000 koalas have died, and there are lots of other estimates for other species too. And then, of course, a lot more is speculative. Hmm. So it is hard to get these exact numbers, obviously. Um, so this is what, obviously a fine example of what we're talking about here today, the effects of climate change on both domesticated, um, farmed, uh, also uh, wild animals. Wild animals come to the fore here. We see these in the news. Uh, obviously, the koalas have made... Uh, big headlines, again, uh, as much for their vulnerability, I think, as anything else. The image factor of the koala is important to news media, I suppose. Um, yep. That's, uh, but, of course, the koalas aren't the only uh, problem there. This is a question for you. you know, how are we supposed to think about wild animals and climate change? Uh, Australia has had drought for uh, two-plus years now, I think, at least, and so drought is a part of this uh, fire issue, but drought also has caused long-term suffering already as well. So climate change uh, causing drought in Australia is as much a, a problem for animals as, uh, as these fires. Yes, absolutely. There are a lot of problems that wild animals face, and some of them, of course, humans have nothing directly to do with. So wild animals already live hard lives because they have to deal with hunger and thirst and illness and injury and predation and all sorts of things that nobody would want to have to deal with. But I think the relevant thing to say here is that increasingly wild animals are also dealing with human-caused problems, mm -hmm. including but not limited to human-caused climate change. And I think that that changes the nature of our relationships with wild animals pretty substantially. It used to be that some people would think, we live here, wild animals live there, and so we should live and let live. But now if humans are complicit in a lot of wild animal suffering, then that gives us an, an extra responsibility to help wild animals cope with mm. the, these issues. Yeah, well, generally, uh, there haven't been too many places where wild animals could live there anymore anyway, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we live in what, what some geologists are now calling the Anthropocene right. or the Capitalocene, which is the geological epoch where the dominant force on the planet is human activity and human economic activity. So there is pretty much no place left on the planet where wild animals are safe from human influence. Right. So let's jump in uh, with this question, uh, Jeff. What do humans owe animals in the context of this human-caused ecological disaster? Well, I think we owe animals a lot. I think in particular we have a responsibility to help animals adapt to human-caused climate change in the same ways that we have a responsibility to help humans adapt to human-caused climate change. So that means at least three things. First of all, that we should do everything we can to mitigate the effects of climate change, to reduce the activities that contribute to climate change. Second of all, that we should adapt to the effects of climate change, that we should change our infrastructure so that we can be more resilient against the effects of climate change for human and non-human animals in a holistic way. And third of all, we should work to meet everybody's basic needs, uh, hunger, thirst, all of the other basic survival needs that people have 
because climate change is going to disproportionately affect the most vulnerable among us and make it even harder for them to get food, get water, find places to live. And so if we can increase general resilience, then that will be part of climate adaptation. So I think a comprehensive approach is the only kind of approach that is ethically acceptable mm. for both humans and non-humans. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Beasts, Burdens on Climate Change and Non-Human Animals. Our guest is Jeff Sebo, philosopher and ethicist who teaches at New York University. Well, you, so you want to argue beyond ecosystem health, right? In other words, we owe more to animals than a, a, a consideration of them as parts of an ecosystem that needs to be healthy. That's often how we look at things. There's a balance in life. Humans have overburdened that balance uh, and uh, we need uh, certain animals to be predators, certain animals to be prey. How do we understand the health of the ecosystem? But there's more to it than that, right? Yes, absolutely. That is, of course, an important thing to be keeping in mind. We rely on ecosystems in order to survive, and we rely on biodiversity in order to survive. And fortunately, that is part of the conversation. So when people talk about the harms of climate change and the harms of human activity, one thing that a lot of people have in mind are the effects that that has on biodiversity and ecosystem health. And we know that both of those things are not doing well. And already that gives us a reason to talk about animals and to care about animals. But it does treat animals only as parts of a whole rather than as individuals with their own thoughts and feelings and needs. And we know from thinking about humans that our individual needs can come apart from our collective needs, right? If, if we can at least make sure humanity survives for another generation, that would, of course, not be enough to make sure that all humans have good lives. Humanity has survived so far, but in every generation, lots of humans have completely unnecessarily suffered and died. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we could be doing better about that. And the same is true with non-humans. We do need to tend to their collective needs. We need to make sure that we can save species and, and keep biodiversity going and keep ecosystems functioning. But at the same time, we need to be able to attend to the individual needs of individual wild animals who can suffer and die in awful and unnecessary ways, even if biodiversity and ecosystems are doing well. Mm. So um, you brought in species uh, continuation, species survival, and you brought in the good life or a good life. It's a, a common um, thing to think about, I guess, in terms of philosophy, right? Uh, what is a good life? Uh, um, mm -hmm. You know, that this is the one of the main questions of philosophy. Can we just have life, mere, mere survival, right, versus uh, something that is a, a good life? How do we? Yeah. How are we able to determine what's a good life? Uh, and I, I don't necessarily get into the uh, want to get into the weeds, at least not yet, in terms of how we yeah. calculate these things or how, uh, how sure. various systems of thinking calculate these kinds of things, but how, how can we consider animals having good lives or bad lives, and how do we feel the, um, uh, I guess, take on the responsibility to understand what is a good life for an animal? Yeah, so without getting into the weeds too much, <laughs> there are different ways of, of thinking about this, and, and we can distinguish two just to give you a sense. So one might be thought of as a subjective approach. And this would be a way of thinking about their subjective mental state. So an animal would have a good life if they have positive subjective mental states like pleasure or happiness or desire satisfaction. And they would have a bad life if they have mostly negative mental states like pain and suffering and desire frustration. On the objective view, a good life would be understood more in terms of something like living a natural or normal life for an animal of this type. So living in a way that most members of your species live with whatever that involves. And it could involve 
good things like happiness, but it could also involve bad things like suffering. But but doing what is normal for members of your species would count as a good life on that sort of view, or at least on one version of that sort of view. And already that gives you pretty different approaches to understanding what it means to live a good life. And then you have this sort of further debate that people have where people ask, is it even appropriate for us to be asking and answering this question on behalf of other species to begin with? We know even from the human case that we tend to be really bad at estimating whether other people have lives worth living and, you know, all sorts of human biases and prejudices can get involved here. And it can be very easy to think that if somebody is different from you or less privileged than you, then they have a bad life or a life not worth living. And that mostly reflects your own bias and prejudice rather than any kind of objective assessment of things. Right. And so you can imagine that that would be especially a risk when <laughs> we start uh, estimating whether or not non-human animals have uh, lives worth living since the non-human animals are incredibly different from us and, of course, not nearly as privileged as we are in, in current society. Right. And so on one hand, you might worry that this is an irresponsible thing for us to even be talking about. But on the other hand, we might need to try to wrap our heads around this question in order to responsibly uh, uh, help non-human animals deal with the harms that we're exposing them to. Well, um, obviously, one of the main questions we might ask uh, is um, how, how we reduce animal suffering when it seems we don't care much about reducing human suffering. Um, if you if you want to start on that briefly, we'll we'll go to the break in about a minute, so you can if you can keep that one short. <laughs> sure. Yeah, we we might pick back up on this yeah. because there's a lot to say here. Sure. But but I would start by saying two things. The first is it would be a mistake to wait until we have solved human problems in order to address non-human problems because, first of all, we probably never will completely solve human problems. And second of all, this can be a positive something where we can find certain changes to make that would help humans and non-humans at the same time. And then the other thing to say is I agree with you that we might not be able to solve this problem. We're never going to eliminate human or non-human suffering, but we can still reduce it substantially. And if we can reduce it substantially, then we should try to do that. Hmm. Well, let's go ahead and take a break. This is the year of insect thinking. Again, this is by David Rothenberg. This is from Bug Music. Uh, we're talking with Jeff Sebo on more on political responsibilities to non-human animals as climate collapse advances. Stay with us on Interchange on WFHB. Support for Interchange comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, environments, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest via Skype is Jeff Sebo, Clinical Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies and Affiliated Professor of Bioethics and Medical Ethics and Philosophy at New York University. He's co-author of Chimpanzee Rights and Food, An- Food, Animals, and the Environment. Our discussion is about the burden humans bear for animal suffering and well-being by being the cause of much of that suffering. Uh, this is one of the questions, the main questions, I suppose, uh, Jeff, is is about the responsibility of being the cause of suffering. Um, you know, one of the things that's hard to understand or think about in this equation, I suppose, or the idea of uh, a human-centered life is that the entire system of life that we know or we understand is sort of based on the suffering of other beings for the most part, right? So we even talk about, you talked about the capitalist scene earlier. We understand that capitalism sprang forth on the backs of African people for the most part. Um, so seeing that we've always, or we is the wrong word to use, but some humans have always dominated in some measure uh, or treated other beings as inferior and as a use value only, um, it is a struggle to imagine how we change that kind of attitude where suffering is a thing that we seem good at or inflicting suffering, I should say. Yes, it is a huge problem and is part of why we need foundational structural, social, political, and economic change if we want to meaningfully deal with these issues, which is not to say that individuals should not be making changes mm-hmm. too. We should be eating less meat and taking fewer flights and doing all of these things to reduce our own individual carbon footprint. But in addition to that, we need to be participating in advocacy toward collective political change because we re- really do need, first of all, these ideological changes. And second of all, these infrastructural changes. We right now live in a society that was built by and for a small percentage of humans Mm -hmm. so that they could live very well at the expense of lots of other human and non-human animals. And a lot of us have inherited that society and have grown up in it and experience it as natural. And some of us benefit from it. I am somebody who grew up benefiting from living in a racist and sexist and ableist and ageist and speciesist, et cetera, (laughs) society that exploits and oppresses lots of other individuals so that I can have a fun life and and a lot of other people experience that as normal too. So one thing that we need to do is first of all challenge the ideology that frames that as the normal way of being for everybody and second of all challenge the structures that make that the only kind of life that is accessible to us. And of course when you do that people who benefit from the status quo are going to experience that as demanding and burdensome and as right. taking away rights and freedoms that they have. But of course, these are never rights or freedoms that we actually had. This is part of an unjust system. And we just need to deal with uh, whatever discomfort we feel in the transition towards a more just system. Yeah, it's one of those things when you imagine the uh, taking away particular 
um, conveniences, um, you know, in which we then adapt to make sense in some le- uh, in some level, right? So, animal farming, obviously, being one of the major issues we have to deal with here, uh, beyond trying to understand in this program the idea of wild animals and how we have responsibility to them, we also simply create life in order to consume it. And, uh, you know, the idea of a grocery store is probably uh, in the same manner of air conditioning, one of the worst things that we've done to ourselves and (laughs) the world. The convenience of prepackaged everything leaves us in a kind of moral emptiness in a lot of ways. We have no responsibility for anything that comes into our house anymore. Yeah. Yeah. The the food system is especially harmful and and it might be worth emphasizing that. And then I agree, we, we all feel detached from that system so, so that we can sort of absolve ourselves of personal responsibility. So the food system currently, we a lot of us participate in an industrial animal agricultural system that causes lots of harms to humans and non-humans and the environment. So just to, to give you a sense of the scale of it, right now, to feed a fraction of the global population, we currently kill an estimated 100 billion farmed animals a year and an estimated one to three trillion wild aquatic animals per year, which even the farmed animal figure alone is annually equivalent to the total number of humans who have ever lived. So yeah, we're killing. Let's stop right there. Yeah, let, Let's stop yeah. and think about that for a second. I think that's one of yeah. the, one of the important points to make. And I think it's an important point in terms of how you understand uh, meaning for a non-human life, right? Is to, mm-hmm. if we're going to understand meaning uh, via these multiple ways, but sentience is about pleasure and pain, right? The idea uh, that we kill uh, you know, hundreds of billions and trillions of animals that may be sentient or we believe are sentient means we're literally uh, being, you know, uh, I don't know how to say it, you know, I don't know how to say how horrifying it is. When you think about it in terms yeah. of sentient, so uh, when you think about it okay. in many ways, uh, it's it's terrifying. And um, But there are many ways that we, we begin to parse these things understandings, right? Who, Which animals have higher value in terms of their possible pleasure-pain ratio, etc. The calculations we make are important here, but don't they also seem to be too complex in some ways um, to understand the way we're making them? It's easy enough for, for me. I'm happy to say, Jeff, Let's not have uh, industrial animal agriculture. Let's not have mm-hmm. industrial farming. Done. Take it away. Mm-hmm. I don't have any question with that, right? How we understand right. Uh, the, you know, that process or that ability is uh, also one of those maddeningly difficult questions. Um, yeah. So, you know, interventions that are that complex but seem so simple, the best way to not murder other beings is to not create <laughs> them to murder them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, so I do think at this point we we know that the the typical animals we we breed for food are sentient. Unless you want to be a radical skeptic about other minds, uh, uh, unless you want to question whether I can consciously experience pleasure and pain. At this point, we know enough to know that all vertebrates and probably many, if not most, are all invertebrates are sentient, are capable of consciously experiencing pleasure and pain. And so we know that every single one, for example, of those 100 plus billion terrestrial and aquatic farmed animals per year, and very many, if not most or all of those one to three trillion uh, uh, wild aquatic animals per year are sentient and are experiencing what we do to them. 
And when you consider the fact that what we are doing to them is not necessary for us to eat and live at this stage in human evolution uh, and is causing a wide range of public health and environmental harms that are hurting humans, there really is no justification at all for that system to exist. Right, right. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Beasts, Burdens on Climate Change and Non-Human Animals. Our guest is Jeff Sebo, philosopher and ethicist, teaches at New York University. So not not necessary is the, is the phrase we might say to live the way we live. And again, you, you pointed out already a fraction of humanity uh, is served by this particular system in in a way that makes uh, some of them live, uh, quote-unquote, better lives. Uh, so we do also have to understand what makes a good life for those people who are um, benefiting, right, from this, this system, because this is part of how we continue to have people support the system, is imagine there is a better way to live, uh, more pleasures, more uh, stuff, et cetera. How do, we, how do we affect a world in which that's the, that's the way that we've sold human progress? Um, yeah. you know, that's the way we've sold progress in what we now, well, I guess what we call developing nations. Um, mm-hmm. even though we should look to developing nations for ways to go forward, you know, <laughs> the, the, the nations that have not fared well under the capitalist regimes or under a U.S. control are the ones that are going to teach us how to live. But currently we focus on how we get more stuff, do more things. We still do it. You know, even though the world is burning, we still do it. Yeah, there there are a bunch of things to unpack here, and we, we may or may not have time to get into all of it, but there are at least a couple of things that I want to mention based on that. One is that even though the good life that we sell to people is a life of luxury that involves a lot of unnecessary consumption and so a high carbon footprint and a high suffering footprint, a lot of that is an illusion, and a lot of that is not necessary to have an actually good life. And actually good life is going to be something involving pleasure, happiness, desire, satisfaction, flourishing, family, friends. And those things can all happen without all of the consumption and all of the suffering and all of the emissions that people are currently uh, uh, producing when they engage in conspicuous consumption. And so we're selling to people a sort of false vision of what it means to live a good life. Uh, And then in the course of pursuing that life, people are obviously contributing to problems like animal suffering, but also public health and environmental problems that will make life worse for all of us, and especially the least well-off among us, which is part of the tragedy of it. And yes, you are right to say that this is happening in both what you might call developed and developing nations, and that creates extra political problems because definitely without question, Places like China, like India, like many African and Central and South American countries, this is where a lot of the action is going to be in the next century because these countries are industrializing and are creating industrial animal agricultural systems modeled on uh, United States, Western European, et cetera, uh, agricultural systems. And on one hand, you might want them to not go in that direction, but on the other hand, you don't want to perpetuate this uh, uh, pattern of engaging in colonialism and imperialism and telling other countries how they should behave, especially when you've benefited from behaving differently. And so figuring out how we can uh, combine questions about food justice with questions about global and intergenerational justice so that we can collectively address these issues while still 
treating everybody across nations and generations and species for that matter as they deserve to be treated is a really difficult and delicate ethical and political question. Mm, questions we'll get into when we get back from the break. So let's take another break. Here's another song by David Rothenberg. It's No More Room on the Ark from Three Corners of the World. Again, we're talking with Jeff Sebo on moral and political responsibilities to non-human animals as climate collapse advances. Stay with us on Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest via Skype is Jeff Sebo, Clinical Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies and Affiliated Professor of Bioethics, Medical Ethics, and Philosophy at New York University. Uh, Jeff, we went to the break talking about just the uh, very difficult ways in which we have to uh, think about the illusion of comfort, the illusion of uh, advanced civilization, the illusion of, of progress as we go into a climate future that's uh, sure to be difficult at best, uh, and yet try not to put the burdens of climate responsibility on developing nations, nations like China, mm-hmm. India, where there are massive amounts of people who are literally just now finding ways to not, um, you know, go without electricity, for, for example, um, and right. trying to understand that, you know, we have to make way for those particular people to to find their own path and and stay out of their their way. However, we are all a part of this situation, and 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 when we think about these things, we I guess I just mentioned sort of the the right of other people 
to to make these decisions, the rights of people to try to understand how to live their lives. Um, how do we go about that philosophically, ethically, et cetera? These are the, the focuses of, of your own work and in thinking about animals and how we answer these questions in terms of climate change, in terms of how we deal with animals already, zoos, it's, you know, any number of things you can think about that might be questionable ethically. Uh, we, uh-huh. we tend to come up with some philosophical ideas to begin to answer our own probably bad consciences more than anything else. How do we justify the things we do or make them less bad than they are? Now, that's a not a pretty way to think about philosophy, I suppose, but in some ways I think it starts with how we, how we justify our actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think that these questions are really difficult and we're not going to be able to answer them We're right going now, to answer them, it, Jeff, but it right is now. Worth right now, Jeff. Keeping in mind, <laughs> it is worth keeping in mind that we all still have a lot of work to do at home mm. in developing nations, sorry, in developed nations, right. especially right now, the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, lots of other places in the world are really going through uh, uh, some really, really difficult things right now and are not showing the kind of global leadership that we should be showing with respect to any issue to say nothing of climate change. I mean, the United States right now is being led by people who are essentially climate deniers right. and and a lot of other people who are climate delayers. So is Australia. So are plenty of other places in the world who hold a lot of power. And so how we should deal with developing nations is really a question that should come much later because right now we need to take care of our own business and install leaders in our own country who are willing to to get this country doing what it needs to be doing and showing leadership on the global stage. And then, and along the way, of course, we can uh, uh, address the the more difficult questions of how we can distribute benefits and burdens internationally across developed and developing nations. Well, let's uh, let's jump into this idea here too. The uh, the simple fact is most people probably don't have conversations of this. Uh, of this type, you might ask, you know you might have questions about animal welfare, um, or uh, even as as much uh, depending on the towns you live in, a- animal abolitionism in terms of uh, consuming animals or using animals for any in any way whatsoever. Um, but generally, you know, what is the work you're doing? Uh, where, what's it aimed at? Who's going to read these kinds of things? Who's going to think about these kinds of issues? You just mentioned uh, an administration that, is, that surely would not even uh, think about looking at anything you write about the ethics of how we deal with animals. Or if they look at it, it'll be to sneer at it in some way or um, you know, see it as an, uh, an enemy tactic in some sense. Now, uh, you know, how, how do we move forward with, with a conversation? And who's this, who's this for? Is this a policy conversation? conversation. Um, you know, how does it move forward in, in a way other than, than academic, I suppose? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. I do think that this conversation can be for almost everyone. We do, you and I, live in a country where an astonishing percentage of the population are climate deniers, which mm-hmm. might make us feel a little bit pessimistic. But in general, one of the awful but also convenient things about this issue is that it causes so many different harms that you can speak about it in ways that connect up with what a lot of different people care about. Animal agriculture harms humans, animals, the environment in this nation, other nations, this generation, other generations. Climate change then harms human and non-human animals, disproportionately humans and non-humans who are already struggling in other ways. 
So you can speak about this issue in an accurate way that can reach people and meet them where they're at based on what they care about because uh, it so many issues come together in, in this conversation. And moreover, I think that we should try to reach everybody because the only way that we can meaningfully change global systems like this is through a kind of systemic, multi-pronged approach that takes lots of different approaches all at the same time. We need to be pursuing social change and uh, increasing grassroots activism to create ideological change in society. We also need institutional change. We need corporations to be choosing on their own to be behaving differently, universities to be choosing on their own to be behaving differently. We need political change. We do need policies that are top-down, where political leaders like people are doing in New York and San Francisco and other places choose to regulate uh, or tax or subsidize things differently to incentivize good behaviors and disincentivize bad behaviors. And we need technological change. We need people to be investing in, for example, plant-based and cultivated meat products and milk and egg products and finding other ways to use technology to improve cars and transportation and energy and uh, infrastructure. Hmm. And we need all of those things to be happening at the same time. And part of what frustrates me about these conversations, not the one you and I are having, but conversations about uh, effective advocacy, is that it often gets set up in this binary, mutually exclusive way where people say, this is what helps versus this is what helps, when in fact, virtually all of it is necessary (laughs) in order to do what we need to do. Right. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Beasts, Burdens on Climate Change and Non-Human Animals. Our guest is Jeff Sebo, a philosopher and ethicist who teaches at New York University. So, Jeff, what are the ways in which we think about these things? I I know we've kind of danced around it a little bit, um, but you've done some interesting work on trying to understand the ways in which we assess harm and benefits, the ways in which we can assess harms and benefits by types of animals who are harmed or who have benefits. Uh, A lot of these um, certain philosophical arguments come down, I think, in ways people do understand utilitarianism is one that's been around a long time. Time, consequentialism sometimes I think it's called um, mm-hmm. which is uh, one in which you basically uh, want the best outcomes for the most people to to rule I suppose or to be the right thing to choose and then you also mm-hmm. talk about rights theory um, and rights theory being sort of a, a moral duty to respect autonomy uh, and do no harm I suppose when asserting those rights so let's think about how we think um, about animal suffering uh, in, a, in a utilitarian vein I suppose yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, I, think, I think that is a good way of describing utilitarianism and rights theory. And, and I should add, too, that, that some other uh, prominent moral theories include virtue ethics and feminist care mm-hmm. ethics. And those, those are thought of as a little bit less rational and a little bit more emotional and a little bit more relational and contextual and are a matter of figuring out how to relate to others in caring ways and to cultivate virtuous character traits that would allow us to relate to others in caring ways. And so we, we might, um, uh, mention, mention that too, and Mm -hmm. and include that in the conversation. But yes, uh, there, there has historically been uh, a big difference, or at least thought to have been a big difference between utilitarianism and rights theory, because as you say, utilitarianism is about increasing pleasure in the world and decreasing pain in the world, producing the best outcome understood in terms of pleasure and pain. And rights theory is about respecting rights and respecting autonomy, not treating certain individuals in certain ways 
no matter what the outcome is, no matter how much pleasure or pain that produces. And so this is a little bit of a caricature, but this has led some people to think that utilitarianism wants to turn all of nature into a zoo. We want to take all of the animals and put them in little cages and then give them food and protect them from predators because, yes, they might not be free, but at least we can be attending to their needs and making sure that they have food and and increasing their pleasure states, whereas rights theorists might think, no, we should let them be and let them exist in nature. And yes, they might suffer horribly because of hunger and thirst and predation, but at least they can be free in making their own choices. That is the sort of uh, caricature of, of how these theories have historically disagreed. Set aside whether that interpretation is right. One interesting thing about climate change and human activity in general is that there is now a kind of convergence between utilitarianism and rights theory because since humans are systematically affecting the lives of other animals, because humans are now complicit in the suffering of other animals, leaving them alone, letting them be is not really an option anymore, even for rights theorists, mm. because they would be the first to say that if we are harming other beings, then we have a responsibility to alleviate their suffering as a way of repairing or reducing the harms that we cause. Uh, so now... Pretty much any reasonable moral theory, including utilitarianism, rights theory, virtue theory, or care theory, is going to agree that we do have some responsibility to figure out how we can make things better for other animals, even if that feels kind of daunting. Well, I get sort of stuck in a lot of this theorizing simply because um, I take I, what I suppose is either, either a stark view if I'm going to believe in creating um, pleasure or uh, giving autonomy or, or liberty or freedom to beings, especially sentient beings, and try to reduce harms. I don't know how I think about this without imagining getting rid of all humans. Um, <laughs> it seems like yeah. there's one species that has caused the most harm to the majority of other species and the planet. Um, that's mm -hmm. obviously, a, 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 I don't think it's a radical thing to say. I think it's an obvious thing to point out the difficulty yeah. in trying to be the arbiter of undoing harms, uh, especially yeah. within, as you say, a capitalist scene or a system that has, has done even more harm than we had before. And uh, sometimes I get stuck thinking about utilitarianism because it sort of springs up in the midst of capitalism. You know, it springs right. up from these theories of, of, of Jeremy Bentham and his panopticon, you know, this, so there, <laughs> there are too many things about it that, that kind of makes me shiver. Um, so uh, how is it that we humans imagine we have a right after we've done so much damage to be the ones thinking about how to be good or do good things? Yeah, I want to grant that that is a serious question and, and, and a question that I think people need to take more seriously. Do we really deserve to continue to exist yeah. given the massive amount of harm that we have caused? With that said, I think I might be a little bit less pessimistic than the perspective suggested by your question. Mm -hmm. On one hand, because I think it underestimates how much suffering and death there is independent of human activity. Mm -hmm. Again, nature itself Sure. is full of horrible suffering and death in a way that I think we often overlook because we have this nice picturesque mm -hmm. uh, view of what life is like for animals, you know, bathing in the sun and the savanna. And the reality is that life is horrible even before humans get involved for a lot of animals. And second of all, I think the perspective might be a little bit, might underestimate uh, our, our 
ability to potentially get our act together mm. and do good things both for ourselves and for other animals, which is not to say that I'm optimistic <laughs> <laughs> that we will do that. Uh, but, but I right. think that we can enough so that I'm not an extinctionist. I really want to sure. try to be part of the community, pushing us to be a little bit better and to do right by ourselves and other animals. Right. When it comes to utilitarianism, I agree. So Bentham did propose a panopticon, which is basically, uh, 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 an extreme version of our current system of mass incarceration minus some of, of its, its worst tendencies. And I think we should all criticize Bentham for that. And I think that we should also uh, recognize that when you have a moral theory as aspirational as utilitarianism, we are meant to maximize pleasure and minimize pain for all sentient beings from now until the end of time. When you try to make good on that, it can produce or... Uh, give license to a kind of arrogance or hubris that can lead to lots of bad outcomes and historically has led right. to lots of bad outcomes. So we should have a lot of humility when we think about how to apply these theories in real life. With that said, I think that if we approach it with the right kind of humility, which a lot of utilitarians now are trying to do, you can see a lot of good outcomes. Uh, and, and even though Bentham should be um, criticized for proposing the panopticon, historically, utilitarians have been ahead mm. on a lot of issues. They were a lot earlier than a lot of other theorists and theologians and other people in recognizing the harms of racism, the harms of sexism, the harms of speciesism. They've often been reformists and revolutionaries in, mm. in those ways. And so I think that we can recognize that when you have that aspiration to make the world a happier place for everybody, that can produce a lot of good tendencies in a person, but it can also produce some risky tendencies like hubris and arrogance. So the key is to, I think, try to uh, invest in those good tendencies and really genuinely devote yourself to make the world a better place for everybody while cultivating as much humility as possible <laughs> so that you can hopefully do do a good job at it. Okay. It's time for our final break. This is another by David Rothenberg. This is Nature Boy. More with Jeff Siebel on our moral and political responsibilities to non-human animals as climate collapse advances. Stay with us on Interchange on WFHB. Support for Interchange comes from The Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest via Skype is Jeff Sebo, Clinical Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies and Affiliated professor, professor of Bioethics, Medical Ethics, and Philosophy at New York University. He's also the co-author of Chimpanzee Rights and Food, Animals, and the Environment. Our discussion has been, uh, I think, varied uh, and covered a lot of ground. <laughs> We're trying to imagine ways to think about things that aren't just sort of accepting the ways we've thought about things in the past, how our families have thought about things, uh, how our culture thinks about things. In some ways, um, you know, uh, I've had many conversations around here about my free will and my uh, free expression, and I often think, well, what what of what of my thinking is mine in the first place? You know, what of my thinking is free of others' thoughts in the first place? So these are difficult questions, uh, and it it does require humility. Where where did I come from? How did I get here? Where am I going? It requires some some humility, uh, uh, the ability to ask those questions and and to, and to accept different answers. So I think one of the problems for me, Jeff, in in a lot of this is that I think so many of us have uh, imbibed uh, absorbed absorbed uh, kind of theological underpinnings of, of, of the use of animals, right? So uh, in, in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, we, you know, we're given uh, in particular uh, interpretations or translations the dominion of animal species, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and that has, I think, served uh, to create a lot of what, what has become terrible in, in our world. Um, how, how is it that we kind of can understand... Um, that aspect that I think, again, is so deeply ingrained in a lot of people, you know, the animals are just a part of God's plan for humans. And how how do we deal with that? Yeah, that's a great question. I I should, I should make clear that I am not myself a theologian and not an expert on how we should interpret different religions. So you should take everything I say with a grain of salt. (laughs) With that said, I think one really interesting thing about uh, the main major world religions is that we have seen reforming interpretations over time as people have, you know, continuously updated their understandings of these religions so that they could fit our current scientific and moral worldviews and we can make all of that coherent. And we are right now seeing really interesting trends in, I think, all of the major world religions where they are reckoning with our uh, moral responsibilities to animals. By the way, you might hear my dog asking <laughs> he, for... He's got an answer. To, he's got an answer too, right? <laughs> yeah, he, he kind of sounds like Chewbacca. Yeah, you're uh, not treating right him now. well, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's pampered. In, in, in any event, uh, to take Christianity as an example, uh, it is true that the, the Bible says that God gave humans dominion over other animals. And traditionally, people have, of course interpreted that in a speciesist way by assuming that what dominion means is we have control Mm. over other animals. We uh, can use them as we see fit. God put them here as resources for us to consume and exploit in whatever ways we like. But nowadays, people are looking back at those passages with a fresh perspective and interpreting dominion instead as a matter of having uh, the responsibility to be stewards of the planet to to help other animals and the environment to do as well as they possibly can. So this is, of course, a very different interpretation. Instead of them being objects, property, commodities, resources for us to exploit, they're uh, vulnerable, sentient beings who might not be able to help themselves. And we've been given powers that they've not been given. And we have a responsibility to use those powers to help them to live well. And that is how this story is going in the case of Christianity. 
and you can find different versions of how the stories are being updated in different religions. And I think that's a really exciting thing to be observing from a distance. Mm. So uh, uh, one thing I, I did want to ask uh, before we run out of time is is the way in which we can go forward uh, in both thinking about this and putting things into uh, practice. So you, you mentioned these things in some of your work. There's a, a possibly epistemic progress and practical progress when we when we look about uh, look at to how to uh, affect animal suffering in in climate collapse so can you talk a little bit about those two things before we go yes I think that we do have a responsibility to help animals adapt but for reasons that you and I have talked about I think that we also need to be humble when we approach that task because so far most of our attempts to intervene in natural systems have been a a, a terrible failure. (laughs) These are complex systems that we barely understand. And so we need to do our homework before we intervene. And so that means, first of all, uh, making epistemic progress by researching how to intervene in wild animal suffering effectively and researching what the lives of wild animals are like, how they relate to each other, how human activity affects them, how different types of interventions would affect them so that we can have the knowledge that we need to act effectively when the time comes. Meanwhile, I think we need to be pursuing practical changes by uh, advocating for the moral and political standing of non-human animals, including wild animals, and making all types of infrastructural and institutional changes. For example, by when we improve our infrastructures to make human communities more resilient against climate change, we can make additions that will also make wild animals more resilient. So, uh, for example, we can install uh, windows on buildings that reduce the risk of collisions with birds. We can install overpasses and underpasses on new highways or rail systems so that wild animals have safe passage. And there are a million other things like that, that if we just think to do them, they would be very easy to do when we are changing our infrastructures anyway. Uh, On that same note, we should also make uh, institutional changes by increasing political representation for wild animals in our governments. Right now, they have no voice at all in our governments, but some places like New York City, for example, are now hiring people to represent the interests of animals in policy conversations. Mm. And once you get a single voice in a room, it can often remind people that there are all sorts of things that we can do that are quite easy that would really significantly improve the lives of other animals. Mm. So if we can do all of that stuff at once, um, increase our knowledge about how to help other animals, and then make these infrastructural and institutional changes, then we're going to be much better able to help animals in an effective way when the time comes. But we can't take forever to do it. In the same way that we only have a decade if we want to make lots of changes to help humans, we have a pretty limited time horizon if we want to make lots of changes for non-humans too. So we have to do our homework, but we also have to be willing to act pretty quickly. Well, you did say somewhere, I guess, I guess a part of your understanding of this is trying to give uh, animals political rights as well, right? Or at least legal rights to, to, to yes. be represented in legal proceedings. That's correct, yes. Yeah. Uh, how's that? I mean, is there a, an actual, I mean, I think one, one of the pieces was a chimpanzee rights, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to have legal standing. Yeah. Uh, I, briefly, I can, I can say that different people are taking different approaches. There are a lot of places that are creating new legal categories for animals. Right now, you can either be a person or a thing. Mm-hmm. There is no third category in mm-hmm. most places. 
So some places like Mexico City, for example, uh, have in, in its constitution created a third category. Mm-hmm. Now you can be a person, a sentient being with some moral and legal protections or a thing. Mm-hmm. And so some places are carving out this middle ground category. Other people are seeking to show that we should reclassify animals not as things but as persons. Mm. Uh, So all it means to be a person under the law is to have the capacity to have any rights at all, where what rights you have are a matter of what your interests and vulnerabilities are. So some people think we should just say animals are persons, just like all humans, including children, are, and then they're going to have rights that are specific to who they are and what they need. So those are things that different Mm. people are exploring right now, and I support doing all of it. As long as we all agree that animals aren't things, Mm -hmm. I'm happy for us to explore different types of legal statuses they could have instead. Great. Well, that's going to have to do it. That's our show. Our final song from David Rothenberg is This Is Good News Gorillas off of Tabletoon, released last year in May. Our thanks to Jeff Sebo for joining us today via Skype to discuss the human responsibility to think about and address climate change and disruption as it affects non-human animals. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks so much, Doug. This has been great. And thank you for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Dan Withard is our studio engineer today, and Cade Young is his exec- excuse me, executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.